morning. Welcome. We, uh, it's just a wee bit warm in here. Okay. That's your fault. The, uh, <laughs> air conditioning is having trouble keeping up with you, but we're working on it. We have our, our trustees, our men uh, who serve our church in the areas of facilities and finance. They do a fantastic job, and they are on the job this morning trying to coax the air conditioning into overcoming you, all of you, in here. So hopefully that will happen. This morning, if you want to open your Bibles up to Deuteronomy 21 and 22, we're going to tackle two chapters of odd-shaped laws in the book of Deuteronomy. Good chance this morning, this may be the best sermon you've ever heard on Deuteronomy 21 and 22. Um, and if you, if you read the passage beforehand, you know why it may be the only sermon that you've ever heard on Deuteronomy 21 and 22. Um, but I want to give you a sense for, that it could be worse. Okay? Instead of interpreting and translating these ancient, obscure laws into our life, we could be trying to deal with some of our own laws. Let's listen to some of these that have been, at one point or another, on the books of our country. Alaska had a law at one point that says you can't look at a moose from an airplane. Um, Tennessee had a law that said you couldn't be asleep while you were driving. I, a good law. It's a good law. Um, Colorado, a pet cat, if loose, must have a taillight. In Corpus Christi, Texas, it's illegal to raise alligators in your home. In Galveston, Texas, it's illegal to have a camel run loose in the street. And in Miami, it is forbidden to imitate an animal. Washington State, think about this one. You cannot carry a concealed weapon that is over six feet in length. <laughs> it seems reasonable to me. And uh, another driving law in New York, it's against the law for a blind person to drive an automobile. Something prompted these laws. At one point in time, there were camels running loose in the streets in Galveston, I'm sure. So there's a history, there's a context, there's a reason. And those are the kind of questions we have to ask about the laws that we're going to look at today in Deuteronomy 22. What's the history? What's the context? What's the reason? And for us, because these laws come to us from God, what, what do they teach us about the heart of our God, our King, our, our Judge? And what kind of a people is He trying to create? Remember, uh, Deuteronomy is a set of instructions given to God's people right as they're about to enter the promised land. Um, this is how you are supposed to live. So we're going to think about that today. And it is going to require some pretty careful thinking. Um, because let me, let me give you a quick summary of the content of Deuteronomy 21 and 22. Okay? There are laws about unsolved murders which require killing a cow in a valley. There are laws on marrying prisoners, the inheritance of the firstborn for people who have two wives, the death penalty for rebellious teens, how, how, to, how long you can hang a corpse on a tree, um, helping your neighbor get his camel back up, laws forbidding cross-dressing, the handling of bird's nests, roof construction, the mixing of seed, critters, and cloth, laws concerning virginity, adultery, and sexual assault in both the country and the city, and laws against sleeping with your father's wife. Okay. 
So maybe we should just stop and pray for a moment before we dive headlong into all of that and try to make some sense out of it. Will you pray with me, please? Um, God, we, we are here beyond curiosity. We trust that uh, your word shows us who you are and who we need to be. So I pray that your spirit would be uh, active both in my words and in all of our hearts that we might receive it for all the good that it's intended to bring to us, for all the glory that you're intended to get from it. So God, help us now. We need your help by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Commentators, from time to time I'll cite different commentators. These are men who've written big, thick books about the Bible particularly now about the book of Deuteronomy. They are scholars. They think long and hard and read a lot of ancient works to try to sort out what these things mean. One of those men, his name is Thompson, he says uh, this about our section. He says, from the beginning of chapter 21, it becomes almost impossible to discern an orderly plan for the uh, arrangement of the material in Deuteronomy. Some of your Bibles, just (laughs) the title is Various Laws. It's just kind of random in their mind. But there are some themes that surface that show us things that really matter to God and ought to shape us as his people. Um, The nations were to be able to look at Israel in this land of promise and see God. They They were to be able to look at God's people and know what God is like. That's the idea behind these laws. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, maybe you remember these verses. See, Moses says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They were to be able to look at God's people and see the fingerprints of God on their life. And, and of course, that hasn't changed. We, we have said before, and it's so true, if, if you live in Wake Forest and you want to know what God's like, you ought to be able to come to North Wake and watch us. We, we are God's people responsible to reflect God to the world. So, that frame of reference, let's dive into um, 21 and 22 and see what, things, what are some things that really matter to God in this context. Starting in verse 1, If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess someone who is found slain, lying in the open country, and it's not known who killed him, so an unsolved murder, It's what we have here. Then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities, and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer, a cow that's never been worked and that's not been pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. 
And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So these verses unveil an elaborate process for dealing what is in essence with an unsolved murder. Found someone who had been slain in the countryside and there were no witnesses. It's an unsolved crime. It's not to simply be left on the books as such. But there's an elaborate ritual, which you've just heard, that must be undertaken to purge the guilt from the nearest city, especially. Presumably, they had the greatest culpability in this. And from the entire nation. For one person's blood. One person's life. So there's a kind of, some scholars think it's kind of a reenactment of the crime. Others perhaps better in my mind, see it as a kind of uh, atoning sacrifice where a life is offered for a life that had been taken. And the text, though it's difficult to sort through all the symbolism, does teach us something very much about what matters to God. Um, something that he considers sacred, and that is life. Every life matters to God, this whole sacred ritual to remove guilt, you know, this undefiled heifer and the valley and the stream are to atone for a sin that they did not do, really at least had no knowledge of their complicity in. All this is just for one life, one innocent life lost. There's a kind of corporate community and even national guilt for allowing that to come to pass and in God's land and for just one life. Now, the FBI estimates that in our country there have been nearly 200,000 unsolved murders since 1980. It's about 20 a day. And, you know, for us as a culture, honestly... If it doesn't, if it's not in your sphere of relationships, it's not really, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Nothing much is made of it. It's just another murder. I mean, that's where we are in terms of the sacredness of life in our country. That was not to be the response in Israel, in the promised land, amongst God's people. Every life mattered. Every life was sacred. And you get a sense from this of how sacred human life is to our Creator. Same idea underlies verse 8 in our passage, or in the, in the second chapter, chapter 22, where it says, uh, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. Put a wall around the roof. We have a parapet around this roof. That you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Again, it's, it's just an indicator of how precious life is to God, so that he's even telling them, design your roofs to protect life. Now, if you've read our text, and really 
honestly, uh, you should read the chapters before you come to church. Okay? Uh, because otherwise you're going to be largely lost and scrambling to find your way through the Bible today. The people that read, I know, because when you greeted me at the door, you're like praying for you today. You know? Those are the people who read this chapter. Read before you come. We send out an email every week called Med for Prep, Meditation for Preparation. It includes a, a, a little meditation on the theme of the service, and it tells you uh, what we're going to study. So read before you come. It will really help you. And if you've done that today, you know that there are a number of cases, five in these two chapters alone, where capital punishment is invoked, the death penalty, for five different offenses. And... And it, and it kind of goes through our mind. If life is so sacred, then why is there the death penalty? How does, how does that work together? And I, the intent, I think, of the death penalty is not to undermine the sanctity of life. It is to deploy it to underscore another thing that's very important. That is the severity of sin. It is precisely because life is so sacred that capital punishment is such a powerful punishment to underscore the severity of sin and such a powerful deterrent against it. Now, that's also why when capital punishment is deployed in the book of Deuteronomy, we've already seen it on a number of occasions, there's so many rules and restrictions around it, how many witnesses you have to have, what happens to false witnesses if they see it, all these elaborate restrictions and stipulations to protect life. Life matters to God. Every life matters to God. And so, as God's people today, when we hear about unsolved murders, for us, that's an invitation to pray. To pray for those who have suffered this great loss to grieve over the injustice that still remains in that. And we ought to be advocates for justice when a life is taken. And we have to safeguard justice by the way that capital punishment is implemented in our nation. Capital punishment is, is very, very controversial. Um, the morality of it abstractly in in the promised land in God's people long ago is clearly established without question. And many will point to the New Testament where secular governments are given by God the power to bear the sword as, as a further um, extension of that amongst governments to this day. But what must be done is that the, not only the responsibility must come forward, but the justice must come forward so that innocent life is protected in the way that capital punishment is happening. What you may not know is that, that we live in a country where in a study, 96% of states where there have been reviews of race and the death penalty, there was a pattern of either race of victim or race of defendant discrimination or both in 96% of the states that were studied. In our own state, there's been a study that says in North Carolina, the odds of receiving a death sentence rose by three and a half times among those defendants whose victims were white. So if you have murdered a white person, you're three and a half times as likely to face the death penalty as if you had murdered a minority. Does that sound just to you? 
know, an average of five death row inmates have been exonerated by means of DNA testing every year in the last decade. That's five cases every year of people who are about to be sentenced to death, about to die, who've been sentenced to death, that we got it wrong. So, um, this issue is way too big for one sermon and way too big for one small sermon, but if life matters to God, then we, we must be advocates for the protection of innocent life, the protection of justice in the carrying out of this severest of punishment, if our society is even able to carry it out at all along those lines. So as believers, thoughtful, prayerful, biblical reflection on these matters is pushed upon us from the book of Deuteronomy. Because life matters to God. Every life matters to God. You also pick up in, our, in this assortment of laws in 21 and 22 is that family really matters to God. If you've read the chapters, I know that's, that wasn't obvious on a first read, but let me show you why I would say that. One is... There are all the protections that are put in place for marriage and family in this passage. Look at just a couple of verses in uh, chapter 22, verse 19. It says, she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. Again in verse 29, he may not divorce her all his days. There are repeated protections of the family from the ravages of divorce just in this one chapter of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 22 there is an exception appears to be an exception to that anyway that uh, Jerry Lasseter pointed out to us last week in verse in chapter 21 this is about marrying a captive prisoner okay and it says, uh, you may go into this prisoner if, you've, if you uh, have desired her to be your wife and they've gone through the appropriate procedures to ready her for that. You may go in her and be your husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. You shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. The language seems to be that, that she would be divorced in that situation. But clearly, this is, if that's the case, clearly, this is what Jesus, exactly what Jesus had in mind when he talked about hardness of heart with respect to divorce in Matthew 19. They said to Jesus, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Marriage matters to God, our divorce rate should be zero, but it's not. It should be, but it's not. The reputations of Christians should be that we don't divorce because we love too well, we love too faithfully for that to be the course that we would walk. God forbid that our legacy in these matters should be the legacy of John Lennon. He divorced his wife, Cynthia, when his son, Julian, was five years old. Listen to what his son, Julian Lennon, says about his father. And yes, this is the John Lennon from the Beatles who did write the lyric, All You Need Is Love. Julian says about his dad, I felt he was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud in the world, 
but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him, his wife and son. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces, no communication, adultery, and divorce? You can't do it, not if you're being true and honest with yourself. Marriage matters to God. We must do more than talk about it. We must protect it. The family must be protected. It must be cherished. It must be fought for and defended. And this idea of how much family matters to God is what underlies one of the most shocking laws in these two chapters. If you've read it, you kind of cringe. Here it is in verse 18 of chapter 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This is another one of those cases where the severity of sin is underscored by the severity of the penalty. Now, we are not under this law, but we are informed by it. And what it teaches us is how severe rebellion is amongst a young man or a young woman. And it seems wholly out of sync for us in a society where uh, a rebellious son or daughter is not a sin, it's a disorder. You know that now they have a disorder that describes this. Um, According to the esteemed Mayo Clinic, they say even the best behaved children can be difficult and challenging at times. But if your child or teen has a persistent pattern of tantrums, arguing, angry or disruptive behavior toward you or other authority figures, he or she may have ODD. Oppositional Defiant Disorder. I am not making this up. Now, while it's not that there's not some value in in a label that helps us think about how to deal with something, the danger of that is that what is sin and must be repented of is now labeled a disorder that can be medicated. Now, again, we are not under these laws, so this is not, teens, you can relax, this is not a requirement, okay, your life is not in jeopardy. By the way, this is evidently not about a young child, this is probably about a young man or young woman, maybe someone in their teens, Um, you can tell that by the fact that they're a drunkard and a glutton, that's not, most toddlers are not wrestling with those particular (laughs) sins, so... Um, the penalty is not to be enacted today. In fact, it's interesting, there's no record of this penalty ever being enacted in the entire Old Testament, as far as I know. Um, but boy, does it underscore the severity of this sin? The sin of rebellion. The sin is not, it's not about gluttony or drunkenness. Those are manifestations of a rebellious spirit towards your parents. And this is a likely protection of the nation from a ruinous future head of household. A son is in view here primarily. And thereby a family who rejects not only parental authority but God's authority. Those two authorities are intimately linked. 
God's authority and parental authority. Ever meet a teen who's rebelling against their parents, who's in glad submission to God? Not going to happen. Because submitting to your parents is part of submitting and honoring God. Ephesians, Ephesians 6 tells us, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. The idea is that if you don't honor your parents, you have not honored God, and things won't go well with you. You won't enjoy a long life on the earth. It's a life that Moses is calling you to of no regrets. You will never regret honoring your parents. Those of us who have dishonored them, we can tell you. That is one of our great regrets. In the early 1980s, there was a lady named Patty Davis who was passionately opposed to the buildup of nuclear weapons. She constantly spoke at rallies criticizing the nuclear arms policies of the Reagan administration. The main difference between Patty and the other demonstrators was that Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States who implemented those policies, was her father. Her mother was appalled at Patty's actions because she felt they were a personal attack on her father. But as long as she was respectful and civil, her father didn't mind Patty publicly expressing her views. Writing about her father in the January 2012 issue of Town & Country, Patty admits she chose the more militant, in-your-face approach instead. She frequently told the media it wasn't personal, but today she realized that her actions spoke louder than her words. When Patty was demonstrating for world peace, she now admits she was also a child railing against a parent. Nothing more. I was at war with my father. One of her biggest regrets was turning her father down every time he wanted to sit down and talk with her about life. She would always tell him, I already know your side. She admits her refusals to talk wounded him. She also re expressed regret for participating in an anti-nuclear rally in 1982 at the Rose Bowl with 100,000 people in attendance. Just before she came to the podium to speak, the entire audience was chanting, Get a new president! Get a new president! Every fiber of her being told her to walk away, but she gave the speech anyway. Looking back, she admits no one remembered her speech, only that she came on stage with 100,000 people were calling for her father to resign. Later in life, after her father had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she said, I would look into my father's eyes and try to reach past the murkiness of Alzheimer's with my words, my apology, hoping that in his heart he heard me and understood. She concludes her article by saying, Now I wish that all those years ago I had led with kindness, not with ideological stridency. We are, after all, remembered in the end for how we treat others. So if you're in your teens, are you one day going to close the article you write about your relationship with your parents by saying, I wish that. I wish that I had led with kindness. I wish that I had showed grace, that I had received grace, that I had talked more, that I had listened better. Bottom line, will you be saying then that you wish you had honored your parents? Because again, those of us who chose not to, it's amongst our greatest regrets. Is that your trajectory now? To dishonor your parents? It does not have to be your trajectory in the future. You are here today 
hearing these words because God in his mercy is giving you a chance to change course and truly follow Christ. And this is part of it because life matters to God and so does family. And in a curious connection between the two, the next thing we see in our text, so does the protection of women. Um, this is a repeated theme throughout our passage. We've touched on a remarkable example of already back in verse 10, with where it says, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother a full month and after that you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife but if you no longer delight in her you shall let her go where she wants you shall not sell her for money nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. In the midst of all the things that are puzzling to us in there, clearly this is a protection of the woman. That the man's right to sell her as a captive has been forfeited, and now she is being protected. She's not even an Israelite, and she comes under this protection. Now you could add to that, Verses 14 to 21 of chapter 22, where a woman is protected from false accusation about her sexual reputation, particularly that she was a virgin when she was married. In verses 25 to 27, there's a protection given to women who have been sexually assaulted in the countryside where no one could come to their aid or hear their cries. Her innocence is assumed in those cases. And in the closing verses of our passage, there's yet another protection for women. The end of chapter 22, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her, he shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce, divorce her all his days. Now, it doesn't doesn't sound like a protection, but marriage in this day is very much an essential protection for this young lady. Um, Chris Wright in his commentary says, Since the matter had been discovered, the girl would no longer attract another potential bridegroom and the exchange of gifts and dowry that went along with the marriage. It is for this loss that the man must compensate the father. The girl is thus assured of security and provision in place of virtual widowhood if she had been abandoned after the loss of her virginity. See, the protection of women matters to God. We should reflect that. Men especially, we should be protectors of women, especially when we live in a country where one in every four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. One of every four. A quarter of the ladies in this room The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence defines domestic violence as the willful intimidation, physical assault, battery, sexual assault, and or other abusive behavior perpetrated by an intimate partner against another. Then they say it's an epidemic affecting individuals in every community, regardless of age, economic status, race, religion, nationality, or educational background. 
But not this religion. Not real followers of Jesus Christ. Men, we don't abuse women. We protect women. Now, if you, if you walk into my 11-year-old son's room, you will see amongst, up on the wall near all the football posters and paraphernalia that he's got up, there's a small framed plaque. And it has three words on it. And these are the three words that are to govern his behavior towards women, the women God puts in his life. These are those three words. Respect, serve, and protect. Okay. And the scriptures that are with it there, if you want to make note of those, 1 Peter 3, 7, that talks about treating women with respect. Ephesians 5, that talks about sacrificing for our, for our wives. And then Genesis 26, verse 7, where Isaac refused to re- protect Rebekah. And instead protected himself at her expense. This is why our church has a policy regarding domestic violence. This is why in the men's session in our life change classes, you have been taught that rather boldly, as I understand it, by our elders. The protection of women matters to God. It's our charge. And women, if you are in a relationship and you are experiencing some form of domestic violence, know that our church is a safe place for you. Contact one of our pastors immediately and let us help you. Because life and family matter to God. You matter to God. Now, unsurprisingly, this odd-shaped assortment of laws also teaches us that our neighbors matter to God. Start of chapter 22. uh, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same thing with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him. To lift them up. See, this is a command against the stockade fence mentality, the suburban mentality, the rear entry garage mentality, cocooning, they call it. Against not getting involved. Sometimes that's called the bystander effect. And it refers to cases where individuals do not offer any means of help in an emergency situation to the victim when other people are present. Actually, the more people are present, the less likely an individual is to help. They've studied this. It comes out of a horrible uh, story of a lady named Kitty Genovese who was um, stabbed and raped with neighbors watching. 
They didn't help. See, we cannot be bystanders. We, we can't just let it go. We can't be so caught up in our stuff that we don't help our neighbors with their stuff. Our neighbors matter to God, and they must. They must matter to us to the point where we are compelled to be involved. This is the very mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer said, as did the Apostle John. He said in 1 John 4, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. When you see something unusual at your neighbor's house, you see if you can help. When you see the neighbor's dog that always leaves gifts in your yard running loose, you help get him back home. You don't just send him merrily on his way. When your neighbor is on vacation, you watch their stuff. You know them. You look after their property because you love your neighbor such that you will not ignore their need. This is the mark of a Christian. Now, we live in what could charitably be described as a non-gated community. Okay? So, it's not unusual that there are occasionally sheriff cars in my neighborhood. Some kind of emergency vehicle. Sometimes the sheriff is there. Just comes with my neighborhood. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't miss it. Sirens, flashing lights, what you going to do? You peek out the window. You wonder what's going on. You know, it, it is my commitment. When I see flashing lights in my neighborhood, I go see if I can help. And not just because I'm a pastor. I mean, I would be a sorry pastor if I didn't go help. But because I'm a Christian, I'm a little Christ to my neighbors. If I don't care when they have a need, then they think Christ doesn't care when they have a need. Neighbors matter to God. They should know that by the way we care for them and look out for even their stuff. St. John of the Cross said, in the twilight of our lives, we will be judged by how we have loved. And I pray that goes really, really well for us. Of course, it matters to God. We'll see in our passage. Um, actually, we don't have time for that. Let me skip down. We are about slap out of time, and I've got lots of Deuteronomy to go through yet. Um, let me give you one last thing that matters to God that's big in this passage. Um, that would be sexual purity and fidelity. Um, the last part of chapter 22 is uh, full of a lot of this. Let me see if I can go back. Um, Starting verse 13, if any man takes a wife, goes into her, and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct, brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter any evidence of virginity. 
And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city, and the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. He sh she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And now you know why that PG sermon warning went out this week. Um, the, the most reasonable explanation to me I found of this law is, it goes kind of like this. The husband has married a woman and he's accusing her of being unfaithful to him. Um, likely during their betrothal period which is regarded as virtually being married in the Old Testament. And so he's requiring proof that she's not preggers, okay? She's not pregnant before they got married. She's now probably pregnant. And he's saying she's pregnant by somebody else. And if that accusation is false, he is punished. If it's true, she is sentenced to death. Again, how seriously does God view matters of sexual fidelity and purity? The very next verse, again, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. The language is vivid and strong. Purge the evil. Sexual unfaithfulness was a serious, even a capital offense in Israel as was sexual deviation of any kind from this faithful relationship between a man and his wife. Um, that's why you find, I think, in verse 5, a prohibition of cross-dressing. Yes, it's in Deuteronomy 22. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This doesn't mean that girls can't wear Chuck Taylors or wear baseball caps. It is evidently a prohibition of something that approximates some kind of transvestitism. Um, some kind of sexual orientation that takes you away from one man, one woman. That is always prohibited. And it's reflected again in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which you can read. So God uses the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife to mirror the love he has for his people. For the nations to see how he loves them. Guess what? The neighbors are watching you. Is that what they see? Or portrayal of the way God loves his people in, the, in your marriage, in the way you love one another? The way you talk to one another? The way you serve one another? The evident affection you have for one another and the evident disaffection you have for all others? 
Is that your reputation, one of purity and fidelity? Is that your reputation, singles, wherever you go, at work or at school? Are you known as someone of high standards who will not compromise? See, all of these things are embedded in these odd-shaped laws, and they show us what matters to God. And they are, they are for our good. They serve to protect his people when they went in the land. They protect us from sin and temptation today. Let me close with one more odd-shaped law. Verse 12 of chapter 22. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment which you cover yourself. That's just thrown in in the middle of all these laws on sexual purity and other things. Typically, it looks something like this. You see the tassels on the corner. You may not be able to see them. Right down here, there are tassels on the corners of his garments for the observant Jew, Orthodox Jew, who to this day observes this command. But this command is not about fashion. Okay? Mercifully, the Bible tells us what it's about. It's one of those laws where it's explained to us in the book of Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations. And to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. To do them. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So, it's to help them remember these laws. Now, what does God want you to remember from this text today? For you, personally. What is that which you must remember? Which we have been taught today. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to discern wisely what you are saying to us today from this ancient text. Surely you are speaking through your word and by your spirit to your people. That's why we're here. We trust that. Lord. So I pray that we have ears to hear again today and faith to do that which you are calling us to do. Amen. On a happy note, it's one of the most depressing things in the text, but it's a happy note, trust me. Deuteronomy 21 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, so this man has been executed by stoning, and now his body's being hung in public as a deterrent, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Thomas writes in his commentary, Just as the corpse of a condemned criminal carried the curse of God, so Christ, hanging on the cross as a condemned and executed criminal, was publicly exhibited as one who bore the judgment of God. He bore the same shame as every executed criminal and was publicly exhibited as one who was accursed of God. To free us from the curse of the law, Jesus himself had to become accursed. Let's stand and close with a celebration of this marvelous love of God for us.
Let your voice and sing that again. 